0: Welcome to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show.
1: This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to you all. This is Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North. Monday, April 24th, 2023. I think it's 2023. Who knows these days? The last three years has basically been one gigantic blur. And what a news day today. Uh, Tucker Carlson out at Fox News. Now, I I don't know Tucker Carlson particularly well, but I've always thought he was a tremendously uh, talented broadcaster, a very shrewd businessman, and also a very principled guy. So I, I think we can all read between the lines on what happened here. And I think that it's safe to say... American media will not be the same, at least for a time being, but I also think he will have no trouble finding a soft landing spot. I don't know if true North can afford can afford Tucker Carlson or if we're after him uh, given his promise to invade Canada. But you know what? Some of us might even just billet soldiers if the u s. invades Canada. You never know. Uh, and then uh, some guy named Don Orange out at CNN that I was not familiar with, but seems to be, no, it might have been another citrus. Don Pamelo, uh, Don Tangerine, Don Grapefruit. Lime, anyway, uh, some guy at CNN that apparently uh, was seen by tens of people uh, is has also been fired today. So that is uh, the big media landscape here. But I, I do want to just start off on. I, well, I guess I've already started off. So now I've uh, I'm moving to something else. But I do want to take a moment on a, a bit of a more somber note to talk about the passing of a fantastic Canadian media figure and someone that I I knew very well and have had many, many interactions on air and off air with over the years. And that is Tarek Fatah, who passed away... And it was it was announced by his lovely daughter Natasha Fatah, who's been doing a, a tremendous job uh, caring for him and, and keeping all the people in his uh, close and far away orbit apprised uh, of what's happening. And Natasha posted on Twitter this morning uh, the it's actually quite a touching message here. But what Natasha writes is that he was a lion of Punjab, a son of Hindustan, a lover of Canada, a speaker of truth, a fighter for justice, voice of the downtrodden underdogs and the oppressed. Uh, Tarek Fatah has passed the baton on. His, his revolution will continue with all who knew and loved him. Who Will you join us? 1949 to 2023. Now, I first met... Uh, Tarek, on The Michael Korn Show, which is a a show that itself is a bit dated. It was back on CTS, a station that's no longer in existence. It's been rebranded as something else. And uh, Tarek Vital was one of the panelists on the left. I was one of the panelists on the right. And we would have some very very heated debates, and I was a a young little uh, punk bull in the china shop type, and he was a bit of a bull in the china shop himself, but with a lot more maturity and a lot more, I think, evidence and experience to back it up. Uh, But he was always so respectful, as respectful as he was passionate, and we sparred on some things, we agreed on others, we disagreed, of course, as I mentioned, on a few. But I really valued... Those interactions and and years and years ago, about 2010, when I was in the hospital uh, for quite a while and in a coma, I had been reading before I was hospitalized his book, The Jew Is Not My Enemy, which was at the time a very provocative book uh, from a Muslim saying, no, 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 our issues are not with Jews. And this was something that many people in the Muslim community took issue with. Uh, Tarek Fatah's willingness to criticize Islam when he thought it deserved it. And he did this while also being a, a tremendously compassionate and caring figure which made him such a a thoughtful commentator. And, you know, years later in 2018, I've never told anyone this, when I was running for office provincially and there was a a week where just everyone in the world it felt like was against me and there was this bad news story and this bad news story and all of that, uh, he messaged me, And said some very kind things, which in that moment were needed and were from an unlikely source, given that he was not at all a conservative. I think he voted NDP in that election and I was the conservative candidate, but he was incredibly kind and incredibly thoughtful. And I know he has left a huge mark, both in his family and in his work. And he will be missed by me and by many, many others. So uh, Tarek Fatah, we thank you so much for all your work and we miss you. And I will, just moving on to the news of the day here, of which there is quite a bit to get through. I want to talk about this story, which is actually uh, challenging for me in some ways because it's a local story to a lot of the people in my neighbourhood and my immediate circle. St. Thomas, Ontario, small town about half an hour from here, getting a giant gigafactory from Volkswagen to manufacture batteries for electric vehicles. This is costing Canadian taxpayers $13 billion in subsidies to make... 3,000 jobs. That's the claim. Now, they say there are going to be some indirect jobs in the range of 30,000. Even then, we're talking about a large sum. If you do the math, that's about $4.3 million per job, which strikes me as uh, something that might have some better ways to spend it to yield some economic uh, economic development in southwestern Ontario or beyond in this country. And this is, to my knowledge, the largest bit of corporate welfare in Canada's history. Not even Bombardier, I think, has built a plant that got $13 billion worth of government funding. Aaron Woodrick, who is the uh, director of domestic policy for the McDonald laurier Institute, joins me now. Uh, Aaron, let's just talk about the math here. Do you think that we are going to get... 13 billion dollars worth of value from this
1: yeah it's really hard to see how andrew and look i i empathize i'm from like you i'm from southwestern ontario i'm just down the 401 in kw all my family lives in london i got friends in st thomas so look uh, it, it, you can be conflicted because there are real people in real community that will benefit from this but when you zoom out and you ask yourself the amount of money i mean the Just to sort of put the sum into context here, Andrew, you talk about Bombardier. I mean, they were sort of the champions of corporate welfare in this country. They managed to get about $4 billion. That was over 50 years, over dozens of of handouts. VW has managed to get more than three times that in one go for a single plant And the craziest thing of all wasn't even brought up in question period by anybody the day after this news leak, which was just astonishing to me. I mean, uh, the idea that parties like, uh, you know, the, the Conservatives and the Democrats have nothing to say on this really just kind of floored me.
0: Yeah, and and one of the challenges is that you had the provincial conservative government that has been cheerleading this as well. They were there at the announcement. They've been talking about how great it is. You had uh, the local conservative MP uh, Karen Vecchio, who I I know quite well was there, and was actually used, I I think quite cynically, by Justin Trudeau as a prop on this. He was then chiding her for Pierre Polyev not jumping up and down supporting this. So uh, the idea that we're all just supposed to say it's great for the community so we all rally behind this without looking at the numbers is i think quite concerning
1: yeah and you know the dirty little secret here andrew is most of these politicians if you get them in private off the record they'll all acknowledge that this is a subsidy they'll all acknowledge that this is not great stuff what they really should say if they were going to be straight with us is guess what vw was shopping around they were going to put this plant wherever they got the best deal so we gave them the best deal You know, at least if governments were honest about that and saying, you know, it's unfortunate that we have to subsidize this stuff, but it's the only way to get these kinds of plants, I would respect that more. I still think it's a bad economic argument and people need to realize that in St. Thomas, for example, St. Thomas, uh, a lot of the people that are going to end up at this, working at this plant, are going to be sucked out of other businesses in St. Thomas. It's not necessarily folks who are unemployed in St. Thomas that will fill these jobs. It's people who are working in companies in St. Thomas that won't be able to compete with VW you and their federally subsidized jobs. So it's not all, even for places like St. Thomas, it's not a clear win when, when you think of all the other businesses there that don't get that kind of special treatment
0: one of the problems with corporate welfare is that it be, especially when you compound it with with globalization is that you have this system where companies literally do what you just described with Volkswagen and they go shopping around I, I think it was back in 2017 when Amazon was remarkably transparent about this they basically said we're having a contest on where to build our second headquarters and it was basically who's going to give us the most money and then we'll we'll go there uh, in this particular case Canada was competing with the United States which is 10 times the size of Canada has an astronomically larger uh, GDP, more money to work with. So how on earth is Canada supposed to compete? Because there is an argument, I don't like the argument, that these are just the rules of the game now. And if you want any investment, this is how you have to
1: do it. Yeah, well, first of all, it's very it's impossible to compete with an economy 10 times your size. You're never mm-hmm. going to be able to match them on everything dollar for dollar. Um, but the I think the 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 unspoken assumption in that is that we have to be in the business of building electric cars, right? It's like we absolutely must be doing this one type of thing. And really, when you zoom out again, there's no there's no argument that economically this is something we have to be in. It's something we want to be in because politically it's popular and it's cool and it's easy to say this is the sector of the future, but I got news for people Governments are not very good at predicting the future. You know, they're not very good at picking winners and losers, which is the reason they shouldn't do it. Um, So this idea that this is one thing that we absolutely have to be in. I mean, what struck me as interesting, Andrews, if we want to be a part of, for example, the supply chain for electric vehicles, well, guess what? Canada has a lot of rare earth minerals that are only to be found in Canada. Um, all the subsidies in the world and other countries can't replace that. So why not worry about finding ways to get that stuff out of the ground, build the infrastructure to the ring of fire, these are things we could do to get to make to make sure that Canada is part of you know uh, the the supply chain for for electric vehicles. but this idea that we have to have this plant in the province or the sky will fall, there's just no basis for it other than the government saying, well, this is something we want to be in.
0: Yeah, that's actually a very important point. And and I think that Canada has been certainly under this government very bad at leveraging the things where it naturally has a comparative advantage. And and one example of that is oil and gas. I mean, this is something where we're sitting on the advantage. We're sitting on something that makes it so Canada is able to do something that other countries cannot do as easily. Why are we competing with things that other places could do as easily that could be in, you know, Lithuania or the United States or Berlin or St.
1: Thomas and really make no difference? Yeah. And the sad answer to to the reason we don't do that, Andrew, is political sexiness. Uh, There are certain types of jobs that are very attractive to politicians. Building airplanes is one of them. Building vehicles, it sounds fancy. It sounds innovative. Oh, It's really good. Yeah. Aerospace is the word for that. these are sectors that politicians just love because they sound really, really fancy things like forestry and, and uh, agriculture. I mean, these sound, it sounds really sort of backwards and the irony of potash
0: photo op is not going to be as sexy.
1: I agree. But, but ironically, these jobs are things we have a comparative advantage in. They pay very well. They don't require government subsidies. And ironically, again, in a lot of sectors like agriculture, for example, very, very innovative. Canada has cutting edge uh, technology in these sectors and continues to develop it but you never hear about it because to politicians from big cities like Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, that sounds like hayseed stuff. And that's the real tragedy here is that Canada actually can compete and win in a lot of sectors. It's just not the sectors that all the Laurentian elites want to chase after because they want to be popular in, in, in places like New York and London. And you're not going to do that by focusing on agriculture. So that to me is the real tragedy here is there are a lot of good jobs for a lot of Canadians out there, but these sort of elite political class Thumbs their nose at it and does not devote anywhere near the amount of uh, resources and attention to those those areas
0: is your view that all corporate welfare is bad, that this is just one line item in federal programming that we could get rid of?
1: Yeah. Generally speaking, yes. I mean, sometimes people like to come clap back at me and say, well, what about subsidies for oil and gas? I mean, first of all, there aren't as many as these people claim. Most of the people that say there's these billions, they, they're talking about tax credits, which to me is something very different. When you give someone a tax break or a tax credit, you're letting them keep more of the money they've already earned. That's very different than just handing them a pile of money from the taxpayer that they never earned. So that's the one difference. The other answer is, yeah, by all means, and them for every sector. And, and the reason is, Andrew, there's no way to have a level playing field otherwise. Governments do not know what the best use of investment or, 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 or people's social uh, skills and talent is. And when you pick and choose, you're distorting the economy. You're driving investment and, and job choices away from other areas. And that's just not fair. That's not government's role. So I'm all for government trying to lift people up, trying to create an environment where any business in any sector can compete. You do that with tax cuts, with better regulation, things like that. But the idea that government's somehow know better than the marketplace, you know, what should be the employer or what sector we should be in. There's simply no basis for it other than the government thinking that they want to be in certain sectors.
0: I know your focus is obviously on on the policy and not the politics here, but I I think the two are somewhat linked in this question of how a future government could do anything about this, or even if they could. I mean, is this the type of thing where no matter what happens, if there were an election, uh, say in a year or two years, this is something that now we're on the hook for?
1: I think so. And I think just the reaction to this is, uh, is telling. Again, the fact that you didn't see, you're not seeing opposition parties. I mean, remember in, government, in politics, if you spend $13 in an orange juice or $6,000 in a hotel room, you'll hear it for days, right? Or Galen Weston gets an $11 million pay raise. You know, the parties will foam at the mouth over relatively small amounts of money, but $13 billion. Not a peep. So I think that suggests this is everyone is afraid to touch this. The other tragedy, Andrew, is as we've seen from other sectors, whether it's aerospace or traditionally an auto, all this buys you is the right to get shaken down again in the future. I mean, people say, well, you know, VW has to meet all these conditions or they're not going to get the money. Well, let's fast forward 10 or 15 years and then someone comes along and says, well, VW, you better shape up or otherwise you're not going to get your money. And VW says, oh, yeah, you, oh, is that so? Well, it would be a real shame if someone closed this plant down and moved it to Alabama. What do you think politicians response is going to be of course they're going to pony up the money again so once you once you start this game you're just setting yourself up to be taken to the cleaners over and over again i'm not speculating we've seen it happen and i fear that that is going to be how this be this how this story ends as well
0: yeah, I fear you're right. And, and I mean, there are no certainties in economics or anything else. And and we also sentimentalize jobs for good reason, because, you know, individual people are, are not just numbers on a balance sheet, they're human beings. But it becomes a bit of a cudgel that's used against common sense. I remember like the SNC-Lavalin scandal, for one example. Here we had yeah. a story that involved bribing dictators in Libya, and the results is, oh, but Quebec jobs. And, and again, yeah. here we have, oh, think of the jobs. Yeah. And I think some Uh, people, sorry, GDLS, uh, again, you know, supplying weaponry to a human rights abusing regime and oh,
1: but the jobs. Yep. You know, people also need to remember that, you know, in economies, certain sectors come and go. This idea that we're going to be able to keep, I mean, we might still have, we might still be, um, you know, horse and buggy economy if people said, well, we can't lose the jobs there. And I give you an example, my hometown Kitchener Waterloo has gone through so many different iterations. I mean it was a, it was a rubber producer, then it was an electronics producer. Uh, you know, then it then they switched over to Blackberry was a giant. Blackberry went bust and it was supposed to be the end, but guess what happened? All the people that got laid off from Blackberry, they started new businesses and now there's a thriving ecosystem there. So, you know, there's a saying in in uh, in uh, free market economics called creative destruction. It sounds bad cuz that there's destruction, but you can't forget the creative part. People are people are they have a lot of ingenuity and a lot of entrepreneurship and uh, you know if you create the conditions if you make it easy to start a business and easy to grow it um, you don't have to worry so much about businesses that are dying off because you've got an environment where the next big thing is is just around the corner.
0: Aaron Woodrick is the director of federal policy for the or domestic policy rather for the McDonald Laurier Institute. Aaron, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks a lot, Andrew. That was Aaron Woodrick. Great insight on this. And yeah, I think the the corporate welfare thing is one where you have to just sever your sentimental attachments to a particular sector or even the idea of jobs. And I I think it's difficult. And and like I said, I mean, I live in London, Ontario, as many of you know, and the uh, big, one of the big employers, just not far from, uh, well, it's not far from anyone who lives in London because it's not a huge city, is General Dynamics Land Systems, which inked a multi-billion dollar deal with uh, Saudi Arabia to supply light armored vehicles there. And this was a deal championed by the Conservatives. At the time, the Liberals were very muted in their criticism because again, here we have, oh, well, I don't know, we don't want to come out against jobs. And then when we learned more and more that it sounded like Saudi Arabia was actually using stuff that Canada was shipping over as part of its human rights abuses Uh, again there was this uh, push from the conservatives to not politicize this and to focus on the economy the liberals said oh we're outraged we're going to have an inquiry and a review and nothing has ever come from this so basically the deal still goes on and we because of jobs which are important and we are talking about real people we stop listening to all of These other things in us that we probably should listen to, like common sense, economics, human rights, and uh, that's the problem here. So now you have potentially 3,000 people in Saint Thomas that are going to get jobs. Many of them may be looking for jobs. Many of them may be employed elsewhere, and they're going to go and work for the Volkswagen plant. Uh, But if you're a Canadian taxpayer who has uh, contributed basically 360 bucks a person, I think that was uh, the math. That's I didn't do that math myself, but you know however much it costs each Individual taxpayer, where's your ROI on that? Are you going to get a discount on your electric Volkswagen? Probably not. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit later on about this historical revisionism that we are seeing from Justin Trudeau, but I wanted to just take a little bit of a jaunt out to Alberta because, as you may know, there's an election coming up there in just one month and five days. True North is going to be covering that election uh, quite extensively, and we'll have a bit of a preview in uh, one of the episodes—I don't know if it's Friday or maybe next week—about what we are going to be doing to cover that. But uh, one of the big issues in general that I talked about with Premier Danielle Smith on this show uh, about a month ago is the idea of whether she's really campaigning against the NDP in Alberta, or is she campaigning against Ottawa? And this is, I think— the big conflict, the big tension right now in Alberta is that Alberta sees Ottawa as ever-increasing in its encroachment on Alberta's terrain, constitutionally, ethically, politically, morally, and for good reasons. So what Daniel Smith has talked about is the idea of doing as much... In Alberta, without the federal government, as is possible within the Constitution. And one of the big issues that's come up time and time again is whether it is long overdue to sever ties with the RCMP to kick them out as the provincial police force and create, like Ontario and Quebec have, a provincial police force. Force in Alberta. Uh, this was articulated uh, quite well in a, a comprehensive piece in C2C Journal, which you should definitely add to your reading list. It was written by longtime journalist Doug Furby, who joins me now. Doug, it is good to talk to you. Thanks for
2: coming on today. Oh, thanks for the invitation, Andrew. Great to be here. Now, now, just
0: for people that don't understand the arrangement, I mean, yes, the RCMP is a national police force, but when it is in a provincial context, it's not operating as such.
2: That's right. It's actually a two-headed monster, if you'll forgive the term. It's really a national police force, and then it's also a force that does community policing. It does it at the provincial level, and it also does it at the city level, the community level.
0: So why is this such an issue in Alberta? Because as we've seen in, in the firearms debate, where Alberta has directed the RCMP to not enforce the federal government's gun grab, they ultimately have oversight on how the RCMP, when it's operating that provincial or community mandate, does its job. So why does it need to have its own Alberta Provincial Police?
2: Well, I think there's a couple of really important reasons there. I mean, first and foremost, this started with the Fair Deal panel that was struck in Mm -hmm. 2019 by the previous premier, Jason Kenney, and that panel... Uh, recognized in in May of 2020 that this would be one of the easiest ways that Alberta could assert a little more of its independence to get out from under the RCMP. And there's lots of examples of why that's a good idea. I mean, we think about the floods in in High River in which the RCMP swooped in and seized a bunch of people's guns without authorization, ostensibly for... uh, safety reasons, but it took those people months and months to get their rightfully owned, legal registered weapons back. So there are irritants like that, that go on all the time. But I think there's a much larger issue and that is that any police force that ultimately answers to the federal government, I think we all believe that it can't do as effective and do as good a job as a locally authorized, locally mandated police force
0: this idea is not a really new idea you go back to the Alberta firewall letter and this was one of the things that was put forward that Alberta should assert itself and at the time i think it was to let the contract expire in 2012 if i recall for for the RCMP and and set up an Alberta provincial police force but again conservative governments in Alberta even Ralph Klein have not accepted this they they've not actually moved ahead with this so what's been the sticking point is it just cost is it other people not seeing the need?
2: I think it's a matter of political will. I mean, when you look at the um, polling that's done about the public attitude about the RCMP, a lot of people support the RCMP in polls. And I got to distinguish between the RCMP officers and the RCMP leadership, because there's very little confidence in the leadership, the senior leadership of the RCMP. But they can raise a sentimental attachment to the RCMP. And so you've got the Alberta Municipal Association coming up uh, saying we don't want to have a provincial police force. We want to stick with the OCMP. So there's a political risk for any government to move ahead with this proposal because there's so much sentiment. But it's almost a nostalgic attachment to the hmm. You know, what we thought of as, uh, you know, the great uh, police forces in, in the world at one point. So... Let's talk about where the current Alberta
0: government is. Now, obviously, this is a government that, as I mentioned, is seeking re-election. Uh, we don't know if it's going to be a UCP government in six weeks or an NDP government, but where is the Danielle Smith government on this issue?
2: Well, the, the, the government ministers who are responsible for this, the Justice Minister, Taylor Chandler, was very close mouth about it. I know that he personally was in favor of uh, replacing the RCMP with the provincial police force. I think Margolis, the the safety minister, feels the same way. Uh, And I think the government, if they felt, if they saw their way clear to do this, would act very quickly on it. As you know, as you talked about, we've got an election on the horizon. It's not a good time to take a, a politically risky move. I think the uh, Smith government is able to get a new mandate uh, from the Jordan government, I would get that they would move pretty quickly on this.
0: You know, we've seen in the last uh, couple of years in particular so, some profound institutional failings by the RCMP. I, I think we can point to the Emergencies Act uh, and a lot of what we learned during the Public Order Emergency Commission, certainly the Nova Scotia uh, sh- sh- killing, which you've referenced in your Uh, piece here in in C2C Journal, just profound failures. Uh, We saw uh, evidence of the RCMP really just running political interference for the liberal government. So this is not an institution that when you, again, not talking about the individual frontline officers, it's not an institution that is without controversy, that's without uh, challenges to its ethics, to its uh, efficacy. So it shouldn't be I, I think, a difficult sell to voters if they care about the issue. And I guess that's the question. I don't know if this is an issue that matters to a lot of people If there's, or if their sense is, is it going to be better at solving crime? Is it going to be better at dealing with the uh, property crime in my city? And And is there an argument one way or another about whether you would get better policing from an Alberta force, or do you think that is relatively equivalent?
2: Andrew, there's a lot of, a lot of evidence to suggest that you would get better policing the devil is always in the details but um you know i one of the communities that i looked at in the article that you referenced in the cdc journal was grand prairie that city has been looking at uh, getting out of rcmp contracts and doing their own police force they've they've moved ahead with that and i talked with one of the counselors who was a leader in that, and he has spent hundreds of hours looking into this. Well, there's a couple of real sore points with the RCMP. One of them is when the town suggests unusual or unique initiatives, let's get more officers out of the more social interaction. This then has to go up through the hierarchy in the RCMP. And in one case, one initiative that they proposed, it took 15 years to get that initiative approved, fifteen years—that's you know those criminals have grown up and moved on to this level, yeah—and so there's that. There's this this spaces, this inability to get all the thing done, and and then I think the other thing is, you know, the RCMP. Uh, a lot of the officers who start in the in the smaller communities are looking to build their careers, so they'll spend a couple of years in a small Alberta town. And then they're looking to move up and out. And oftentimes that's out of the province. So you don't get the officers staying in the community, knowing the people at the same level, really knowing what's going on in that community as well as you would if you have a local police force. The other thing is, there's one other thing. I think that there will be a much higher level of coordination between Alberta agencies, other Alberta agencies, such as social service agencies and the police service. So I think in a there sure. we would have more boots on the ground that they may not all be sworn officers but you've got more people out there looking for public safety
0: well it's certainly an interesting debate you can read uh, the piece here at c2cjournal.ca it is called crime and mismanagement why it's time to drop the rcmp and create an alberta police uh, doug furby is the author and it's with me now doug thanks so much for coming on today good to talk to you
2: that's really talk to to andrew
0: Thank you very much, Doug. Uh, This is a a story that came up today that I must admit, when I was just sort of casually bouncing around the internet, looking at things to talk about, and I I heard it playing, I was like, oh, that's kind of a weird weird little thing. I, I thought it was a deep fake. I don't know if you know these things. It's like before AI, it's this technology that lets you just make a video of someone saying something that they never said and some of these things are getting quite convincing uh, my whole show actually has been a deep fake I, like i said in the last show i'm actually not here uh, but uh, this was a, a video that i saw i'm like oh there's no way Justin Trudeau could have dared say that this must be- deepfake but no it was not a deepfake this was him sitting down at a round table at the university of ottawa with the president of germany and engaging in a little bit of a historical revisionist exercise take a look
3: and all of the scientists and the medical experts and the researchers not just in canada but around the world understood that vaccination was going to be the way through this and therefore while not forcing anyone to get vaccinated I chose to make sure that all the incentives and all the protections were there to encourage Canadians to get vaccinated and that's exactly what they did we got vaccinated to a higher level than just about any other of our peer countries and that's why we had a less deadly pandemic than most other countries Now I see a lot of people nodding along with that. But boy oh boy, you know the comments section on the live stream right now is exploding with people who are in deep, deep disagreement with everything I just said. And we have to figure out how to continue to protect those people because my job as prime minister is to keep people alive and keep people safe and keep democracy going whether or not they choose to believe that's what I'm doing or not
0: when he references people in the comment section disagreeing I'm like Hi, are you talking? I'm not commenting, but are you talking about me? So he his first claim there that we have to unpack is that he never forced anyone to get vaccinated. He just offered a bunch of incentives for people who did it. Uh, This is a little montage that we have shared clips of on the in the past on this show about all of the things Justin Trudeau has said about the unvaccinated and the stakes of being unvaccinated.
3: If you don't want to get vaccinated, that's your choice. But don't think you can get on a plane or a train besides vaccinated people and put them at risk. The small fringe minority of people who are on their way to Ottawa or who are uh, holding unacceptable uh, views uh, that they're expressing do not represent the views of Canadians who have been there for concerns uh, expressed by uh, a few people uh, gathered in Ottawa right now. Uh, are not new, not surprising, are heard, but are a continuation of uh, what we've unfortunately seen uh, in uh, disinformation and misinformation online, conspiracy theorists uh, about microchips, about, you know, God knows what else that go with the tinfoil hats. Conservative party members can stand with people who wave swastikas. They can stand with people who wave, uh, the can fa-
0: That list, by the way, went on for another, I don't know, minute or so. Uh, This little montage of his comments about uh, the unvaccinated, about people that don't get vaccinated, about people that protest against his vaccine mandates. Do these sound like just little incentives? They're little incentives. It's your choice. Do what you want. But it's it's all good. We're just going to just try to coax you in the right direction. No. Justin Trudeau's entire approach was to vilify and demonize anyone who, for whatever reason, did not want to get vaccinated against COVID. That was his government's approach. So when he says, we never forced anyone, let's talk about what his government did. His government forced people who were unvaccinated into a two-week-long quarantine after they entered their own country, if, that is, they had been able to leave because they were not allowed to board a plane in Canada or to otherwise, in some cases, go into different provinces. That was a provincial rule. I'll give you on that one. But to get on a plane, you had to be vaccinated. To get on a train, you had to be vaccinated. If you wanted to work in the public service, why on earth you'd want to work in the public service right now, I have no idea. But if you did, you would have to get vaccinated. You wanted to serve your country wearing a uniform, as perhaps you had done around the world. You would lose your commission if you were not not vaccinated you'd get fired if you were not vaccinated so let's stop pretending that people in this country had a choice when the government manipulated the outcomes and consequences of not making the choice it wanted you to make to such a point where for some people it was untenable to continue to live without doing something against their will something they did not want to do That is what this was. So no, you did not remain able to just free of coercion, make up your own mind. People who could not afford to lose their job had to do it for the sole reason of not being fired. People that would not have been able to afford to put food on their children's dinner plates had to get vaccinated. That is not a choice free of coercion. So no, Justin Trudeau did not protect and preserve the right to make your own choice while just offering a little incentive. You get a little like $50 gift card if you get vaccinated. No, he made it so some people could not actually live their lives, work, visit their family members, visit dying family members on the other end of the country if they were not vaccinated. That, Justin Trudeau, is not a choice. And by the way... It also was not all that effective. He talked about this as though there was an efficacy to this program, as though when he put in all of these mandates and restrictions, it got Canadians to having this really high vaccination rate. Canada was on track to have a high vaccination rate in general, and it did. Close to 90% of people got uh, the two doses before they changed the definition and made that no longer fully vaccinated. And the reason I bring that up is because if you look at the chart. And I should have pulled it for today's show. I may do this tomorrow. If you look at the chart on vaccine uptake in Canada, it actually was pretty much at a flat line by the time the really restrictive mandates came into effect. So that's late fall of 2021 into the winter of 2022 so when we had the ban on getting on planes when we had the ban on working in the public service when we had uh, the freedom convoy which came as a response to this and and other aspects of it when you had the trucker mandate forgot about that one earlier uh, vaccination uptake was actually going nowhere So these measures were not getting more people to be vaccinated. What these measures were doing were demonizing and vilifying and punishing the unvaccinated. And you see it in that very first clip we played there of him at a campaign rally in Calgary, which is you don't get to sit on a plane beside a vaccinated person. That was Justin Trudeau's approach. It had nothing to do with public safety. It had nothing to do with transmission. It was, I don't want to see when I'm on a plane some dirty, nasty, unvaccinated person beside me. That was the entire intelligentsia, Laurentian elite, Justin Trudeau liberal approach. It was that the unvaccinated are disgusting, despicable people. And that's why anyone who took a stand with the Freedom Convoy was a fringe, unacceptable swastika waiver in Trudeau's eyes. So you don't get to revise history now and say that you have always protected and preserved the right to make your own choices because that is just a work of fiction we've got to end things there my thanks to you all and we will be back tomorrow with more of canada's most irreverent talk show thank you god bless and good day to you all
1: thanks for listening to the andrew lawton show support the program by donating to true north at
3: www.tnc.news